Right, uh, yes, it's the last five verses of uh, Joshua chapter 8, which means that there are six verses in all, because they, they're, they're in, inclusive. Um, one of the uh, most respected Bible teachers of the uh, mid-20th century was a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, some of you may have uh, heard of him. He was a minister at Westminster Chapel, and uh, every Friday night, he, there were thousands, who, quite a few thousand, who would go to hear him, and he would always preach for about an hour. And he, when I was there in the 1960s, he, had, he was preaching on the, Paul's letter to the Romans. He'd started that in 1952. So when I was there in the early 1960s, he was still going strong which I calculated probably meant he preached for an hour on about one and a half verses a, a, a night, a, a Friday night. Quite incredible. Uh, I just tell you that because I am not Martin Lloyd-Jones, and although this is only six verses long, I will not be preaching for an hour. Half an hour? No, probably not. Twenty minutes more like, or even less. Whoever, who knows? We, we will see. Anyway, just to sort of fill in the background of where we're uh, at at the moment, last week you looked at uh, uh, the victory that Joshua had at AI, at least I think you did, we weren't here, we were up in London with our daughter for Mothering uh, Sunday, but that's what I think you should have looked at. Uh, when uh, Joshua won that victory with the uh, children of Israel uh, over the town, the city of, of AI, and from there he marched northwards, with the people, uh, the children of Israel, until he got to two mountains. One of them was called Mount Ebal, and the other was called Mount Shechem. And they are the ones that are being uh, talked about in the passage we've got before us today. So let's read that, and uh, then we'll uh, pick out a few uh, points uh, from it. So uh, if you've got your Bibles or uh, some way of uh, looking at it on your phone, um, we start at verse 30. Uh, then Joshua built on Mount Ebel an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally, formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children 
and the foreigners who lived among them. So here we have got uh, Joshua and the people of Israel moving northwards from Ai, and they come to these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And some commentators say they're a bit like an amphitheater. So you people could stand on one, on one of the mountains, say the Mount Ebal, and shout across to other people who are standing on Mount Gerizim, and they could actually both hear each other. Well, whether that was really the case, we don't know, but certainly they were standing connected with Mount Ebal and connected with Mount uh, Gerizim. And so Joshua and the people of Israel have got to these two mountains. But at the time at which they reached them, they would have been empty. There was no one on them. They were just capable of doing that. Now, what did Joshua do? Well, he could have just bypassed them and gone on his way with the children of Israel. That would have been the natural thing to do. But in fact, he didn't. He stopped and he put into operation what Moses, the word of God spoken to Moses, actually said. And this is the first point I want to make from this passage, that he committed himself, Joshua, committed himself to all that God had commanded through Moses. Joshua had been with Moses since they left, uh, since they left Egypt, in fact. And he'd been with him all the way. He'd learnt all that uh, Moses had, uh, had said, had been with him. He respected Moses, and they were together. He had supported Moses in everything. And he recognized that the word of God was speaking through Moses. And so he recognized here that he could not just bypass the mountain. Why not? Because Moses had given instructions as to what was to happen. If he had just taken the easy route through, he would have not been doing what God wanted. Because God had already spoken through Moses. And we read it in the first couple of verses, or first verse at any rate, of of the passage we've just read. Verse 30 says this, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. Verse 35, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel. Joshua was obedient. He didn't skirt round the mountains. He took the word of God, which had been spoken through Moses, and he put it into practice. And the first point, real point I want to make is not that just that Joshua obeyed what God had said through Moses, but God wants us to obey what he has said in his word, the scriptures. God calls each one of us to obey him and to obey him and commit our lives to him. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. He said that to the people he was talking to in the New Testament. And he's saying that to us. And so we see here, I think, a very clear demonstration of what this uh, principle means. In other words, 
It's not just a verbal response that God is looking for from us. He's looking for something that is committed and active. We're to be committed followers of Christ. Remember the parable which Jesus said in, uh, about the houses that were built on, on uh, ground that was uh, of stone and ground that was of sand. He said, the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house without a foundation. It was not built, it was built, not built on, a, on the rock. It collapsed in the storm. But rather, we're to be like the man who built his house on the rock. Someone, Jesus said, who comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice. I think we see quite a clear demonstration of what this principle means. Commitment to God in the practice of baptism. And here we're talking about, of course, baptism by immersion. As we go down into the water, we are identified with Jesus in his death. As we come up out of the water, we are identifying with him in his resurrection. As Paul said to the church at Rome, we were buried with him, Jesus, through baptism, into death, in order that just as Christ was raised through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And in, on Easter Sunday, as you will be aware, I'm sure, and if not, it will be talked about uh, before then, we are going to be having a baptism. And it's going to be a big baptism because, praise God, there are a large number of people, young people particularly, who want to obey the Lord in baptism. And that is commitment. We are saying to the Lord, we believe in you, we've committed our lives to you, and we want to celebrate that to the world. And there is blessing in that. Because Jesus, uh, what was said by the Apostle Paul, what does the, as we come out of the water of baptism, we, are, we may live a new life. So we go down into the water of baptism, we come up with Jesus, and, and just as Jesus promises to give us new life, we can have that new life. And that means there is real blessing in commitment. As Paul said to the church in Rome, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That was how the Apostle Paul described baptism. And there can be lots of ways, I think, in our lives in which we know we have got to come back to God commit our lives to him afresh and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for being my salvation, for being the person who leads me and guides me. I want to follow you. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That was what the Apostle Paul said. Because 
he recognised that in commitment, there was blessing. In view of God's mercy, he said, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. That's commitment. And if you do that, you will be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That's blessing, transformation. And that's what God wants for each one of us, to commit our lives to him in total. And when we do that, we receive the blessing of God amongst us and in us. Some years ago, or quite a few years ago now, I found great difficulty in reading the Bible. You may find that difficult to believe, but I did. found great difficulty in reading the Bible. To be frank, it was boring. And every time I looked at it, I really had to struggle. And for me, it wasn't until I obeyed God and went forward one day to receive the blessing, the filling, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that that was taken away. And from then on in my life, there has been joy in reading the Word of God. I don't know whether you're in that kind of position, but if you are, I would urge you to come to God, to seek Him, to be filled, get somebody else to pray for you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you do that, as you allow God to fill you with his spirit, you will find that there will be changes in your life. And for me, the change was that I found joy in reading the word of God, whereas before it had been something that was difficult. So we need to be committed to God. And we need to where those areas are, to bring them to him, that we might know his commitment. So, looking on a little bit then, for the second point, not only did uh, uh, Joshua commit himself to everything that God had said through Moses, he also established what God had done through Moses and said through Moses which was to be for the blessing of all the people of Israel and their route through to being a holy people belonging to God. And there is blessing in togetherness, is the point I want to make here. What did Joshua do? He got the people together. And this is is a point that I want to emphasize, that there was blessing in this. God had commanded through Moses, and remember this was before the Israelites had crossed the river Jordan. This is what he said in Deuteronomy 11 verse 26. God said through Moses, see I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God. The curse if you disobey by following other gods. You are to proclaim the blessings on Mount Gerizim. And on Mount Abel, you are to proclaim the curses. This is what, uh, what Moses had said. It may not have made a lot of sense to Joshua, but it, he recognized it was what God said, and he put it into practice. Verse 33 of the passage that we're looking at says, Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, 
half in front, front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, of the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded. This was the word of God. Moses had said it, Joshua recognized it, and although he was looking at two empty mountains at that particular point, he recognized that that was what God was saying, and he needed to obey it. We don't oft always understand what God is telling us to do. There may be things that we have that burden on us that we should be somewhere else other than we are at this particular, particular point in time. Maybe he's calling us to go to a different city, a different location. Maybe it's some other kind of change in our life uh, that is needed. Rose and I knew that when we came to Cornerstone City Church, that was where God was leading us. And we knew that because the church we were in formerly wasn't open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wasn't open to being baptized and filled with the Spirit, it was a good church and they were good people. But we knew that that wasn't where God wanted us. And we've, God spoke to us through his word, through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in fact, a few uh, verses earlier than what we're looking at at the moment. He spoke to both of us, and we knew we had to leave. We didn't know where we were going at that point. But then we ended up at Medway Family Church. We thought we'd give that a, a, a go. And the person who was preaching on that occasion had a particular word for Rose that just fitted her particular circumstances. And we knew that was where we should be. We knew that God wanted us to leave where we were and to move into a different situation. And we have been here ever since, and we praise God for it. So, the next point I really want to make here is that in this, uh, in this next section, there is power in understanding our lead, where God is leading us, but there is also blessing in being together as the people of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, it tells us that as the curses were proclaimed on Mount Ebal, there on Mount Gerizim, the people on Mount Gerizim said, Amen, knowing there would be no blessing if there was disobedience to what God had said to them in God's word. And this was a demonstration of their unity as the people of God. But this was the old covenant. Does it apply to us in the new? Well, I believe that there are elements where it does. To begin with, if we just break down the idea of curses and blessings, to begin with, the curse, we recognize we are part of the new covenant. To begin with, we're recognizing we are part of the new covenant. And therefore, we're not under law, but under grace. As Paul said to the church in Galatians, Christ released us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us. And also, if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. However, it's also clear in the New Testament that there are actions or attitudes that we can take which will have negative implications for us and could be seen as coming from God as a curse. What are they? Well, as in Joshua's day, I think the first would be disobedience. 
Again, writing to the Galatians, Paul told them they were to serve one another in love. Then he went on to say, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will destroy each other. Although a curse isn't specifically mentioned, it's a clear implication that that's pretty much what it was. There was disobedience and they were devouring each other. And these were Christians. And Paul is warning them against that, that we've got to be careful in that area. Not only is there ranked disobedience, but we can also be guilty in the church of half-hearted obedience as individuals. Clear demonstration, of course, this, of this would be the church at Laodicea, where Jesus condemns them for being neither hot nor cold and says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Well, that's pretty judgmental. And that was in the New Testament, a New Testament church. Finally, there is greed in this section. In his second letter, Peter condemns false prophets who in their greed have made up stories to exploit their listeners, and he calls them cursed. These are the New Testament equivalents of the curses that belong to Mount Abel, which we've just been talking about. And unless dealt with, they could detract from the blessings God wants for his children on Mount Gerizim. There is also the activity of Satan we could consider. Satan loves to find out where we're going wrong. He loves to look at those bits in our lives where we're not following as we should be. And he says, right, I've got you. And then he comes and sort of says, well, I know God says you've got to do this, but that's a bit harsh, really. Try and do this. Just put it to one side for one moment. And that was what exactly the kind of thing which he said to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Has God said? And Eve, of course, followed the line. But we shouldn't be doing that. And God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to be filled with his spirit in order that we can move forward in the what work that God wants us to do and the people God wants us to be. And the thing I want to emphasize here is that there is power in togetherness. Yeah, the people of the Moses' day were standing on Mount uh, Ebal and they were standing on Mount Gerizim and they were in their togetherness at that point. And they were talking about the law and they were talking about the blessings which they could... Uh, receive and they wanted the blessings out of obedience and that is exactly what God wants for us so maybe it's through the things that we do together as a church that God wants to bless us yes he wants to bless us as I've said individually by committing our lives to him but he also wants to bless us and this is the second main point I want to make he wants to bless us as a church, as the people of God, in our togetherness. How can he do that? Well, obviously, as we come together as a church on a Sunday like this, we listen to testimonies of each other. We listen to blessings which God has, uh, has done in our lives. They may be very powerful testimonies. They may be very powerful things of what God has done. Or they may be quite small things in the grand scheme of things, but they are still blessings. Our daughter was having problem, problems with uh, her car. 
and she couldn't get to uh, the bottom of what it was. She'd taken it to the garage uh, and the people, the mechanics, but the lights that's supposed to come on uh, didn't never came on to signal there was something wrong with the engine. Never came on when she took it to the garage. And so when she was wanting to get into school, because she's a teacher, she could never be sure that the car was going to work. It was going to break down or something like that. So we prayed with her about it over the phone. And the next day, she rang us up to say that not only had one light come on, but two lights had come on. They were there when she took the car into the garage, and they were able to fix it. And she was a happy bunny. And so were we, because prayer had been answered. That's the family, if you like, joining together, because Sadie is a wonderful Christian, and we were able to support her in that. In the larger scheme of things, we're together as a church, and there is great blessing in being together, and we need to emphasize that. We need to make it not just a Sunday, but there are other occasions when we can get together. And those occasions can be very powerful. Maybe we get together in grow groups or something, or uh, uh, small groups of one form or another. Or maybe we get together with the whole church, the whole of Cornerstone, in the things that uh, that they are doing. And I know that coming up, there's going to be uh, uh, an occasion which um, uh, Newton is going to be uh, leading, going to be all day on the 1st of April, isn't it? Saturday. Uh, worship and worship and worship where we come to God and we praise him. We give thanks to him for who he is. That'll be wonderful and it'll be a real blessing. It's a time when as a church we can come together. It's a time when we can, whatever our problems are, whether we're feeling blessed or whether there are problems in our lives, whether we feel we're on Mount Ebal or where the Uh, the difficult things were or whether we're on Mount uh, Gerizim where the good things, the blessing is happening we can come together and we can raise our hearts to the Lord in prayer and worship that togetherness is wonderful and we need to be we need to be taking note of it we need to be really making use of it and the more we do that as a church as it was for the people of Israel under Joshua The more we do it as a church, the stronger we become. So not only do we need personally to be committed day by day, fully committed, not just a verbal response, but an act of our bodies, our wills, uh, and our behavior. Everything needs to be committed to him. Not only is that important, but it is also tremendously important for that togetherness to happen. They were together on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. We need to be together as often as we can. Uh, And it's not always easy, of course, because of work patterns and the rest of it. But there is a principle of togetherness there, which I believe is tremendously important. Thirdly and lastly, whatever the cause of the problems in our lives, whether it's what other people have said about us, or whether it's from God, As a result of disobedience, the answer Joshua applied, which was detailed by Moses, was to build an altar on Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal is where the difficulties were. It's where it said the curses were. But God wanted 
And he wants us to come before him, to lay our lives before him, to build an altar in the midst of the difficulties which we may be facing, whatever those difficulties may be. And that altar that was built there was an important in, that, in the way in which it was built. First thing that was said about this altar was an altar of uncut stones in which no iron tool had been used. What on earth did that mean? And why was that insisted upon? Because if you've got a stone which has been cut and shaped by an iron tool, it might look good, but it's not what God had created it for and to be. In other words, the knife would make it into something different from what God wanted. And so the altar of our lives, which we need to bring before God in difficult circumstances or in the good circumstances, whatever it is, that altar needs to be nothing that it brings in the world, nothing that brings in an iron knife to shape it in the way we want it. It's got to be the pure word of God. It's got to be the pure desire of God. It's got to be his pure blessing in our lives, not shaped in any other way. So we must come to God with an open heart, without being compromised by personally identifying with the world's attitudes. And that's how we can do it. We can come to God and say, well, God, I'm with you. I'm going to pray to you today. But actually, I'm thinking more about what I'm going to do this morning, what things are like at work, and all these problems and difficulties. Bring those to the Lord. Don't dwell on them. Bring them to the Lord, and he will be able to answer your prayer. Genuine worship is committing our whole lives to God, not being more concerned with the difficulties, but recognizing that God can bless us and can guide us through. I think it was the prophet Isaiah who said, when he was talking about going in a particular direction, he said, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you want to turn to the right hand or to the left, this is the way, walk in it. And that is what worship is all about. Listening to God, listening to his word to us, listening to his voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Don't use your own imaginations and ideas. That's bringing a knife to cut the stone. God says, don't do that. He said that to Moses, which Joshua obeyed. Don't do it. Make it an altar of uncut stones, un untouched by the world's ideas and circumstances and things. And that is one of the things we need to bear in mind. So Jesus said in Luke 6 that we were to bless those who curse us. We were to do good to those who hate us. We pray to do uh, to, who hate us and to pray for those who ill-treat you. That is the pure word of God. That is not saying, well, I'm going to pray for that guy 
because actually I get on quite well for him. But that chap over there, no, or that, or that girl over there, no, I don't know, it's, it irritates me. Not going to do that. Jesus said, bless those who curse you, who say nasty things about you, who do good to those who hate you, pray for those who ill-treat you. That's not the world's attitude to take on the issues and resentments that we feel towards other people. Nowhere to bless them. Forgiveness is key to this. When people have said things to us that we don't like, things that we find difficult, things that hurt us, what does God say we have to do? He says we must forgive each other. Just as God forgave you. To the Corinthian church, he emphasized the importance of forgiveness. He said, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Unforgiveness means we're giving Satan a field day. He can use that. And it's one of the, mo- one of the things that the Apostle Paul emphasizes we've got to watch out for more than anything else. To continue the analogy of the stones on the altar, if we have used the world's knife to sharpen them by our actions, then we need to identify those areas in our life where this has happened. Confess them as sin and repent. That's why the altar is so important. We need to recognize where we are falling apart, where we are not going the way God wants us to go. We need to confess that as sin, and we need to repent. And that is a significant part for our worship, because it will renew us, enable God to renew us, and fill us with his Spirit. As the Apostle Peter said on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The stones also had the law of Moses written on them, indicating that for Joshua, his worship was governed by the truth spoken by Moses. But for us, Jesus has come. So as he said to the Samaritan woman at the well, as true worshippers, we worship the Father, in spirit and in truth. What is the truth written on the stones of our altar when we come before God in worship? Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought with a price. That's the attitude to which we need to come before God in worship. And I just want to finish by uh, sharing something which Rose showed me last night from a book uh, which we've got. And I think it sums it up. It's called Worth. A well-known speaker started off his seminar by holding up a 50-pound note. In the room of 200, he asked, who would would like this 50-pound note? Hands started going up. He said, I am going to give it to one of you, but first let me do this. 
He proceeded to crumple the note up. He then asked, who still wants it? Still the hands went up in the air. Well, he replied, what if I do this? And he dropped it on the ground and started to grind it into the floor with his shoe. He picked it up, now all crumpled and dirty. Now who still wants it? Still the hands went up into the air. My friends, you have all learned a very valuable lesson, he said. No matter what I did to the money, you still wanted it. Because it did not decrease in value. It was still worth 50 pounds. Many times in our lives, we are dropped, crumpled and ground into the dirt by the decisions we made and the circumstances that come our way. We feel as though we are worthless. But no matter what has happened or what will happen, you will never lose your value in God's eyes. That's recognizing worship. God values us. As we come before him, we need to just allow him by his spirit to recognize how much he values us. Yes, it's vitally important that we commit our lives to him fully and utterly. Not just a verbal response, but to be followers of Jesus. Yes, it's vitally important that we come together, we share with each other. As we mentioned earlier, writer to the Hebrews said, neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. That is so important. But the most important thing of all is that we come before God in worship and we recognize he values us. And so therefore we lay our lives before him and say, thank you, Lord, that you value us. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to give our lives to you. Let's stand, shall we?